Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Michael Humer, professor of philosophy at the University of Colorado at Boulder and my former philosophy professor for both metaphysics and epistemology. He is the author of many books, including The Problem of Political Authority, which is the subject of a previous Free Thoughts. His new book is Knowledge, Reality, and Value, A Mostly Common Sense Guide to Philosophy. Welcome back to the show, Mike. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Why write another introduction to philosophy? Uh, there's a lot out there, so write, write another one. Yeah, I mean, well, there's none by me out there. <laughs> that's important. That, yeah, uh, that's important. that needs to be done. I mean, so there's a lot of philosophy books. Um, most textbooks are not very well written, um, you know, partly because the author is sort of like uh, talking over people's heads, right? And uh, because the author has kind of lost touch with what what parts of his subject are difficult and whatever. Um, I'm much clearer than most authors and more organized and uh, also more amusing. Right? So, and uh, because, you know, I think that if you publish with a traditional textbook publisher, um, you know, besides the fact that your book winds up being like three times more expensive than it should be, um, then, you know, you have somebody looking over your shoulder and saying, oh, you can't make this joke. And like, you know, this is too flippant and this doesn't sound professional or whatever, you know, so... So, like, I, if I had a regular publisher, they would say, I can't get endorsements from Plato and Aristotle on the back cover. They just, you know, they just wouldn't believe that those were genuine endorsements. Most of our listeners are not philosophy majors, not philosophers, probably not at this moment taking or planning to take a philosophy course. And I'm sometimes struck by how many people tend to question the value of of philosophy, not of like specific, you know, like let's talk about libertarian political philosophy, but just philosophy as a broad category compared to say like, well, I could be studying history or I could be studying economics or something that's, you know, real. So for those, for people with that kind of attitude, like what is the value of an introduction to philosophy? Yeah. I mean, so it kind of, kind of depends. Um, but like if you're interested in politics, you know, a lot of philosophy is, um, closely related to political issues, right? So, like, if you're interested in political issues, well, you kind of have to know something about moral issues, right? Because it's like, that's the foundation of a lot of people's political positions. Um, sometimes epistemology comes up when, you know, people are like, oh, what's your justification for that? And, you know, especially when you're talking about morality, people start wondering about your justification for your beliefs. Um, you know, like, the reason why I thought philosophy was important, like, the the best thing about philosophy to me is that it causes you to think more clearly. And in my view, most people are uh, confused almost all the time, and they probably spend their entire lives confused, and they don't even know it, right? So, like, they say stuff that makes no sense, and they don't even notice that they did that. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, this is an analogy I use. It's like, um, you know, when you're dreaming, and stuff happens that makes no sense, and you just take it in stride. You just don't even notice that this dream is not making any sense until you wake up and then you realize, wow, that was weird. <laughs> anyway, okay, so that's like most people and waking up is like, you know, after you studied philosophy. That's a big claim. And I can imagine a lot of people 
being rather skeptical of it because it doesn't seem to meet their own, you know, like all of us have had the experience of confusion. We know what that feels like. And most people don't go through their lives or don't often experience something that sounds like confusion. And they, they carry on and we have conversations and we go to work and we go to school, we do all this stuff and we don't feel delusional or like we're dreaming. So, what do you what do you mean by like being confused or thinking confused things? Yeah, so I thought of an example, right? Like, um, you know, I told somebody one time that I was writing a book about infinity or something, and there was an issue about whether infinity is a number, and the person said, "Isn't infinity a concept?" Okay, and that, so that to me was an example of a very confused concept, a very confused remark, right? Um, you know, so first, like, there's a presumption that in whatever sense infinity is a concept, whatever that means, that numbers aren't, right? Because otherwise, how is that relevant to the issue of whether infinity is a number? Okay. Um, but no, it's not a concept. The concept of infinity is a concept. Infinity isn't a concept, right? It's like it's not a concept of a concept, um, and, you know, so, but like, that's a term that's very commonly used in a confused way. Um, yeah, this is another thing. Uh, people talk about the nature of ethics, right? Um, a very large number of, um, students have a hard time understanding how different meta-ethical theories are different from each other. Like, a large number of students don't see the difference between subjectivism and non-cognitivism and maybe even nihilism, right? Like if you try to tell them what these three are, they confuse them with each other. Um, but, you know, actually these are incompatible. They're different forms of denying objective values, okay? But they're incompatible with each other. And it's important that they're different because the objections to them are different, <laughs> Right. And then somebody responds to an objection to one of these theories by appealing to a different one. And then you try to tell them, okay, so you just switched your theory, right? <laughs> like, uh, right. You just switch from non-cognitivism to subjectivism. But if they don't see that there's a difference between those, then they're not going to get the point. Right. So, um, now, uh, if you don't know what those things are that I was just talking about, then this explanation probably wasn't very helpful. Okay. <laughs> right, <laughs> well, but, you can give a little praise. Yeah. What, what non what those three things are. Yeah. So like compatible. The, the non cognitivists think that moral statements do not express propositions. So they're not, um, they're not true or false. It's like, it's not true or false that abortion is wrong. It's like rooting, it's like rooting for a sports team. Basically. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. abortion pack, is pack, wrong. The Packers are awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Abortion is wrong is like, boo, abortion. <laughs> okay. So that's neither true nor false. Okay. And then you raise an objection that says, okay, well, consider a sentence like, um, if abortion is wrong, then fetuses are people. Okay. So that was not expressing an emotion, right? I didn't say abortion was wrong. I just said, if it's wrong, then something else. Okay. What does that mean? If boo on abortion, then something else. Okay. That doesn't make sense. Right. And then, you know, students will commonly be tempted to say, Oh, it means if I disapprove of abortion, then fetuses are people or something like that. Okay. And then you have to point out that, okay, so that's not non-cognitivism. That is a subjectivist theory. It's a subjectivist theory that abortion is wrong means something like, I disapprove of abortion. Notice that that's, that's a 
proposition that's either true or false. It could be true as a matter of fact that I disapprove of abortion, whatever. So anyway, okay. But so, you know, if you're confusing these two ideas with each other, like the one idea that it's neither true nor false and the, the other idea that uh, it could be true, but it depends upon your attitudes. If you confuse those with each other, then you're going to sort of like not follow the dialectic. I feel like I'm back in Mike's class, uh, <laughs> but we have a lot, a lot of conversations like this. Um, why should people try to be rational? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, so to me, that's kind of like asking for a reason for doing what you have most reason to do, right? Actually, not kind of like that. I think that's what it is. That's, that's what that question means, right? The rational, the rational thing to do is, by definition, what you have most reason to do. So I don't have to give you a reason for doing that because we've already stipulated that that's what you have most reason to do. All right. So is it immoral to be irrational? Um, is it immoral? I guess I would say not necessarily, right? Okay, so like, um, uh, you're buying lottery tickets, you know, it's a waste of money. Okay. It's not immoral, but it's kind of, it's slightly irrational, right? Because <laughs> it's a bad deal. But it, it can be. Uh, there are times when being irrational can be immoral, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, um, you know, in my view, there's a tight connection between morality and um, rationality, right? Like, if something is rational, it cannot be immoral. Um, however, you know, I note that I have a, um, you know, maybe not the same view of rationality that other people have, right? So, so what is your view of rationality then? What does it mean to yeah, be rational I mean, versus irrational? Yeah, so, you know, just... So there's rational action and there's rational belief, right? So rational action is just the action that you have most reason to perform. Um, this, so this view, um, you know, I'm presupposing that you can weigh different kinds of reasons. So you have prudential reasons, like from the, from the standpoint of self-interest and you have moral reasons. And, um, there's sort of a thing that's overall most rational to do, right? So like you have a moral reason to give your money to charity and you have a prudential reason to spend it on yourself. And you can sort of weigh these reasons against each other and decide whether the moral reason is strong enough to, to sacrifice your interests and vice versa. Right. And so after you make that weighing, that's the most rational thing to do. Right. I also think that, um, that is at least a morally permissible thing, right? If, if it's overall rational, then it's, it has to be morally permissible because morality can't demand that you be irrational, right? About rational belief, um, the rational belief is, um, it's the thing you have, well, it's the, it's the doxastic attitude that you have most reason to adopt, right? So you have reasons for believing something, you have reasons for um, disbelieving it, and maybe reasons to withhold judgment, right? And the rational attitude is the one that you have most reason overall for. What I wonder about then is, though, if rationality is, you know, that whatever it is that you have the most or best reasons to do, lots of people disagree about what we ought to do or have the best reason to do at any given time. And it's not obvious to me that all of that disagreement stems from, well, one person's being rational or the other person's being irrational or both people perhaps are being irrational, but rather that we have principled disagreements about what we ought to do or that we have different, you know, we, we see this, there's been public health has been in the news lately and 
one of the things that we see is public health professionals essentially taking a zero risk position on on say covid you know like we should if there is any risk then we need to be masking we need to be locked down and so on and other people pushing and and this doesn't seem to me like this is a disagreement about rationality it's a disagreement about we have different risk tolerances different preferences different tastes and then acting upon those means acting in different ways um, and those are determining to some extent what is the best for me at any given time but it would seem like like if rational seems like an all or nothing thing like you're either being rational or you're not and so then all disagreement to sound very randian for a second would then look would be irrational so you know to comments i mean so some things are more rational than others i mean so you can be slightly irrational or very irrational right etc so you know it's not it's not like all or nothing and the other comment is um yeah you know the um different people have different reasons for acting and people can have conflicting reasons right so um so like you know an, in an obvious sense like your interests might conflict with mine and therefore you might have reasons to try to bring something about that i have reason to try to prevent okay so like if we play a chess match like i want a certain thing to happen and you want a conflicting thing to happen <laughs> so that's okay right um so like you know rational for me to make this move and rational for you to try to trick me into not making it or something like that um, okay, so um, now about the public health thing, I mean, I think, so some of what's going on could be that people have different goals and like different interests. Like, so, you know, maybe if some people are, are at greater risk of getting COVID than others. So like, if you're a very young person, maybe it makes sense to just go out without the mask, you know, <laughs> because maybe you don't. Maybe you don't care that much about the old people or whatever. <laughs> you should care about old people, okay? But anyway, you know, sort of like, but you should also care about yourself reasonably. So, okay, that's part of what's going on. But also I think part of what's going on is a kind of irrationality where um, people are kind of switching what they consider to be a good argument based upon sort of like ideological considerations or like the the um, tribe that they belong to, right? So, um you know, somebody gave this example, you know, one of my, one of my Facebook friends is giving this example that, um, you know, earlier he, the Facebook friend thought that, um, oh, you know, like we should put off giving people second doses of vaccine until we get a first dose to everyone, like prioritize getting first doses out. And then, you know, a bunch of people were opposed to that. And so, okay. And then now there's a question of whether you should hold off giving people third doses until everyone gets the second dose. Okay. And so then this person was commenting that a lot of people flipped their opinion about this. And... What changed? Like, it's a very similar issue. But, you know, what it, what changed was, I don't know, like, you know, what the, what the status quo is, right? Like, what the currently existing policy was, people are just biased in favor of. Does the external world exist? And do we, do we have good reason to believe that it exists uh, in, yes. in general? What <laughs> yes, are some of those reasons? Because I, <laughs> I, I had a really vivid dream last night. Uh, so uh, oh, I, well, I think uh, it might have existed. 
Yeah, you're talking to part of the external world right now. Hey, <laughs> I'm in the external world. I'm external to I you. I guess it's anyway. evidence of something. Yes, <laughs> and, you're, and you're external to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, although you know that's um, a little bit funny, there's also a serious point, which is people sometimes are confused about what the external world is, right? Or students are right. So. My mind is external to you, so like skepticism about the external world that like that that's not the view that we don't know about the external world because if you don't know about the external world, then there's no we like you don't know if there are any other people <laughs> so anyway, just keep that in mind, and that is of some importance because that reportedly is why um Thomas Reed gave up idealism right so Thomas Reed, the um, 18th century philosopher, apparently he was initially convinced by Bishop Berkeley's view that, you know, physical objects don't exist. There's only like ideas in the mind, right? But then when he thought about it a little bit more, he thought, oh, wait, that means that these other person-shaped things that I'm seeing are just ideas in my mind, right? And like when they, when people talk to me that's just more ideas in my mind and so there's no reason to think that there are any other minds except for maybe god right and then he thought that's too much i'm not i'm not going there so does the fact that there are like if the fact that there are a lot of people who agree on something this seems to be i, I one of so we all agree that we're looking at computers right now or we if we were looking at the same wall or the same tree the fact that we agree is that good evidence for something being true generally speaking uh yes yeah that you right so um so therefore god exists a lot of people believe in god yeah yeah so okay so you know question one the fact that many people believe in god just by itself with no other information that's the only thing you know you just popped out of the womb and somebody told you a lot of people believe that there's this thing called god okay and you know you're a remarkably smart and good reasoning baby uh, so now should you increase your credence that there is this thing called god which you know no other information about except that a lot of people believe in it Yes, you should absolutely raise your credence in that. Like, you're a very bad baby if you don't. <laughs> so, but, you know, second question, like, is it really powerful evidence for me right now? No. I, I mean, you know, like, given everything that I know, is it really powerful evidence? Like, no, not really, right? Like, I mean, I think I have some explanations for how it could come about, um, that there were a lot of mistaken beliefs about that. It's some evidence, still some evidence, right? Um, you know, if everybody disbelieved in God, then I should lower my credence relative to right now, I guess. Okay, and, you know, why is this true? Well, I mean, how can this not be true, right? Like, how could it not be that people believing something is evidence that it's true? And by evidence that it's true, I mean, you know, it raises the probability, right? Like, when you... When you acquire this information, you should increase your degree of, of credence that the proposition is true, right? That's the nature of evidence. Um, how can that not be the case? Uh, it would have to be that when human beings form beliefs, in general, they're just like random guessers, no better than a random guesser. And if that was true, we would all be dead, right? If our beliefs were just like random guesses, you know, and think about anything else like, okay, uh, you heard that there was a traffic jam on the freeway, but you didn't see it with your own eyes. 
you know, like 50 people told you there was a traffic jam. Do you increase your confidence that there was a traffic jam? <laughs> yes. Right. Now, uh, people might get confused when you introduce an example of something weird, like 50 people told you that they saw a UFO. And you're like, well, I don't believe in UFOs to begin with. Should you increase your credence that there was a UFO? Yes. <laughs> right. Should you raise it to 100%? No. <laughs> right. Like, you know, distinguish these two questions, right? Should you outright believe that it was definitely true? Probably not. But should you think it's more likely to be true? Obviously, yes. Right. Um, and, you know, like that's, that might be easier to see if you imagine like, and what if, if nobody ever saw a UFO, should you have lower credence? <laughs> Nobody's ever seen like something that looked like a space alien ship. Should you have a lower credence than now? Obviously, yes, right? Like, yeah. If there were no UFOs, it would be more likely that nobody would see them. I guess it feels like the world is, from, from an evidentiary standpoint, more complicated than that, or at least the way that a lot of us think about evidence or the evidentiary problems that we run into, like aren't these kind of stark examples of 50 people said they saw a UFO or, you know, I don't know, I don't think that trees exist or that kind of thing. It's more like there are, if we're, you know, we're not, we're not writing philosophy papers. Um, we're not trying to come up with, you know, these, these like perfectly rational things. We're trying to get by in life and use philosophy to inform, you know, to help us clarify our thinking and so on. That a lot of the times when we're dealing with evidence, it is, there are competing evidentiary sources. There are, you know, the, the consensus view looks to be largely right, but there are reasons to think it's wrong on the margins, but there are potentially different ways it's wrong on the margins. Um, you also have people, you know, there's <clears throat> on the left, you have the, the reality based community that says believe in science, uh, which seems to, you know, they care about scientific evidence, but then that leads them to a lot of questionable views um, or, you know, accepting and rejecting different scientific beliefs based on how they align um, on on the right, you see this kind of like the rational community, the people people who put that they are like rational in their Twitter bio often aren't. Um, and like and this seems so how do we how do we use philosophy to navigate, say, that kind of world or a world where we're like encouraged to do our own research? You know, like these seem like harder problems of weighing and figuring out not just what counts as good evidence, but what counts as evidence in the first place. Yeah, I mean, so that's very general. So, like, I can't, um, I can't give very useful advice in general for solving problems where there are controversies, because you know, if there's a controversy, it's probably complicated and probably requires knowing the specific details of that. Um, I mean, I'm going to comment on you know the stuff about trusting science, I guess. Um, yeah. So generally, if there's a consensus among the experts on something. Generally speaking, that is better than that consensus view is better than the alternative views, right? Okay, and so I tried to put that carefully because very frequently the consensus view is wrong. Like in the history of science, there have been a lot of consensus theories which were later found to be wrong. And it's quite likely that a lot of the views that we still have are still wrong, right? Okay, but. Nevertheless, they're better than the other views that people have, right? So, um, you know, like uh, Newtonian physics is 
in some like, you know, epistemic way is superior to Aristotelian physics, even though they're both false, right? It's like in some ways like closer to truth or whatever. It helps you, helps you make more correct predictions. Um, okay. So, you know, I want to say that. Um, I want to say also that, um, you know, I think that people kind of pick and choose what experts they want to listen to. And, you know, that's not a good thing. And so I would like people to kind of reflect and see whether they're doing that. All right. So one thing is uh, people might decide that they like to listen to climate scientists, but they don't like to listen to economists or vice versa, depending on your political orientation. Uh, and that would be based upon not liking what the economists are telling you or what the climate scientists are telling you, right? I'd like to suggest that people try to avoid doing that, right? Um, it's probably a good, good general rule. When it comes to ethics, now this seems for most people, this seems very different that we talked about the external world and whether or not trees exist and walls and, and whatever, but people have pretty stark disagreements on ethics. So does that indicate that ethics are a different type of thing than the things in the external world? Yeah. It depends on what you mean. Different type, right? But uh, Like they don't have a different kind of truth. It does indicate that it's maybe harder to know ethical truths, right? The, the sort of greater amount of disagreement. I would point out that this is true about philosophy more generally. There's like a lot of disagreement in all areas of philosophy, including ethics, but also metaphysics and epistemology and metaethics. Um, this is also interesting because like, you know, if somebody is trying to give an argument for um, anti-realism, like somebody's trying to argue that morality isn't real in some sense. Okay. Whatever. And then they're using the argument from disagreement. Um, it's, it's good to note that a lot of people are going to disagree with that argument, right? They're, they're going to disagree that disagreement shows that it's not real. And so if you accept the argument from disagreement, then, you know, it cuts against itself, right? Because people disagree with it. Anyway, okay. Um, no, but um, so it doesn't mean that there aren't really ethical truths. It does perhaps mean that they're harder to know, which does perhaps mean or it does mean that you should have a lower confidence when you have um, ethical beliefs that other people disagree with, right? Um, now, they're, not all ethical truths are controversial. Some of them are. So people like to give examples of ethical issues that are much debated. We don't talk about the ones that are uncontroversial. So we talk about whether abortion is murder, but we don't talk about like whether murder is murder. <laughs> like we don't talk about whether, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer picking random people on the street and murdering them so he can eat their body parts. We don't talk about whether that's wrong. That's not like a topic that comes up in philosophy classes because it's uncontroversial. But there have been right? entire so, societies based on human sacrifice, child sacrifice, like large scale murder. Yeah. That seems to yeah, be well, it's not been, as clear. Yeah. I mean, there have been many societies where um, it was common to go to another tribe and attack them, right? Like go, go on raids or have wars with the other tribe. Um, I, I don't think there's any society in which it was accepted to just murder anyone, right? Like you just like kill your neighbor, like, you know, the, the fellow tribes member for no reason. Uh, now, you know, you might think, oh, so what? Does that mean that like, 
you know, murder is clearly wrong for people in your own society, but not not so clearly wrong if you kill people in other societies. Um, well, it was less clear to people in in primitive societies because they were biased, right? Because there's sort of like a you know genetically programmed bias against foreigners or people from the the out group, right? And so because of that bias, we sort of like didn't apply the same rights to the out group that we do to the in group. You said that this disagreement in ethics means that we should maybe less firmly hold some of our beliefs in ethics, be less certain about them. But it seems like ethics is an area where we ought to hold pretty firmly if we think we're right. Like if I'm in, in metaphysics, if I think the nature of the universe is X and you think it's Y, you know, me acting on that is not likely to impact you a whole lot. Or if I have screwy beliefs about the existence of cryptids. That doesn't have much impact. But ethics is about how we treat each other and what's permissible. And our actions in that area can have, you know, very profound or ultimate impacts on other people. And so it seems like if I'm pretty, if I'm, if I think something is ethically right or I think that what you're doing is ethically wrong, I ought to hold to that pretty firmly and I ought to try to convince you of that as opposed this seems like the last area where we should be like wishy-washy um no no i don't think i think think that's false seems false um so okay so you know i want to distinguish two things one is your degree of confidence in a belief and the other is like how much you care about it right so there's like your emotional attachment or whatever or your degree of motivation um, and, uh, you know, so like if the ethical belief, um, implies that there's something extremely bad or something extremely good, then maybe it's appropriate for you to have strong feelings about that. Um, but that's, so that's different from having a very high degree of confidence. You should not have a very high degree of confidence in ethical beliefs. And the, the, the fact that there are practical implications uh, only makes it more important to not be overconfident, right? Uh, almost everyone has a tendency towards overconfidence. Almost no one has the opposite problem, right? Like, so by overconfidence, I mean they attach a higher probability to the things that they believe than the evidence really warrants. Like when they when they have a belief, you know, more confident than it should be. And also, you know, it's harder for them to revise the belief, right? Most people under-revise their beliefs. Like they get contrary evidence and they make less adjustment than they should. Almost no one has the opposite problem. Okay, and this problem of, you know, dogmatism and overconfidence, um, it, it leads us away from the truth. And if there are practical implications, then the importance, like the practical importance of the question, makes it all the more important that we not be led away from the truth in the way that we standardly are by our natural biases, right? So here's something that a lot of people believe, and by, based on some of what we were discussing, at least gives evidence to this belief, which is that the state and governments are not just legitimate, but even necessary but we can start with legitimate. I mean, the belief that the state is not legitimate is extremely uh, marginal if we're just taking a poll. So does that matter when we're talking about Are you politics? calling me marginal? <laughs> I am. Yes, I am. Yeah. 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 I'm a, I'm a fringe political philosopher. Um, 
Yeah. So, you know, like, in, so in the problem of political authority in, in that book, um, in chapter six, I discuss some of those kind of psychological explanations for why people are attached to the authority of the state, like why they think the state has authority and why they kind of feel, you know, emotionally like they have to obey. Um, so, you know, like part of the story is I have an explanation for why people would feel like they have to obey authority figures, even if in fact there wasn't any authority, right? And there's a number of a number of these factors, right? But like there's status quo bias, which I think we have excellent evidence for. That is, people are biased in favor of whatever is the current way things are done in their society, right? And like, and you can see this because you can see like lots of other societies where people have all kinds of crazy, horrible practices, and like the people there are like, yeah, this seems great, you know, like, you know, we're we're doing human sacrifice or <laughs> like uh, forcing gladiators to fight to the death, and you know, the people at the time are like, woo, this is fun, <laughs> okay. So, and then people today are horrified, and. Well, you know, that was the practice at the time. There's a practice now, right? So, like, there's good evidence um, that people are extremely biased in favor of whatever they see people doing around them, right? And, like, you can't, you can't, um, there's, like, not an alternative theory where you say, no, no, the way that things are currently actually done is generally correct. That can't be because the way things are currently done has changed a lot and varies in different societies, right? So, like, it can't be that, in general, however things are done in your society tend to be correct, right? So what's the difference between bias and knowledge here, though? I mean, like, they, they know they know more about this, so they tend to believe in it. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, so, you know, take the example of, like, having a gladiatorial combat. <laughs> like, they know more about that, right? That's true, I guess. I mean, they know how fun it is to see people dismember each other uh, in front of a crowd, I guess. So like, so if that was the issue, right? So if the issue was, is it fun to watch, <laughs> then maybe the ancient Romans would be the experts on that. But like, is it wrong to force people to, uh, you know, injure and kill and torture each other? Um, even if it's fun, right? Like, cause that's our view. Even if it's fun to watch, it's still wrong, right? Then I don't, I don't see that the Romans have extra expertise, right? Is there a pragmatic angle, not to gladiatorial combat, but to this, say, the question of political authority in that you can say, look, okay, philosophers have mounted very strong arguments against all of the theories of political authority, i.e. the theory that we have like a moral obligation to obey commands from political leaders and so on, and had knocked them all down. And so from a strictly philosophical standpoint, political authority is either groundless or has very shaky foundations. However, Truth in that sense is not the only thing that matters, right? That that how we act upon that, what the world looks like matters a lot too, and political institutions are fragile things, societies and civilizations are fragile things. Uh, most attempts to radically change the nature of our institutions have not turned out terribly well. And and so 
you libertarians, you anarchists, you philosophical anarchists, you know, you can you can make those arguments, but the reason that we should believe in political authority is because not believing in it is is dangerous. Um, that radicalism is dangerous. We shouldn't, you know, we can tinker on the margins, but if we have something that seems stable and seems relatively, the liberal institutions of a democratic society seem relatively okay compared to a lot of the alternatives, we should put our efforts instead into propping those up instead of attacking their moral foundations. Yeah, good. So, uh, and, you know, I periodically comment that things are going extremely well in the United States compared to most societies, right? Most societies in the world today and most societies in history, right? Things are going great, actually. So you should, like, we should be concerned to preserve what's going well and not totally mess things up, right? And so, you know, and then there's this, like, political philosopher like me who comes along with some very radical views, like I'm an anarcho-capitalist, um, and you think, uh, yeah, like maybe he seems like he's got good arguments, but maybe we just shouldn't change anything, right? <laughs> because things are going great compared to the way they usually go. But um, I mean, this is part of why I suggest, this is what I suggest in, in my book, The Problem of Political Authority, that we should try to move gradually. So my proposal is not, you know, immediately abolish the government, like just, you know, kill all the government officials and then just see whatever happens. That's, that's not what I would propose, right? I propose, uh, well, let's try outsourcing some of the government's job, right? So like, oh, policing, that's, that's part of the government's core job, right? Let's try outsourcing that. So let's try having private security guard companies who'd be hired to patrol neighborhoods instead of the government police. And there could be multiple competing private security companies so different neighborhoods could choose different companies to patrol their area. Okay, let's try that and just see how it works, right? If it doesn't work, then we could go back to the government police, but I think it's going to work a lot better than the government police. And then if it works and we just like expand it, right? And then eventually it could be where every place is patrolled by private security instead of government police, right? And then we don't need the government police anymore. Like, so, and I don't see at what point some, like, big disaster is going to happen, right? Uh, I want to comment that, you know, I think um, the transition to anarcho-capitalism matters. Like, if the way that you make the transition is by the government just suddenly disappearing, and, you know, that's it, and then, you know, the next day we have to figure out what to do, that would not go well, Right, especially starting from where we are now, where almost everyone believes that you need a government. So then they would immediately set about trying to create another government. Uh, and, you know, and then some people would set about trying to become the dictator or whatever. Okay. But if you imagine this gradual transition where the government is outsourcing its duties, so the alternative institutions are growing at the same time that the government is, is shrinking. You know, that looks to me okay. That, look, that looks to me like safer. Okay. And then, you know, you can do a similar thing with a court system, right? Like, um, the, so, you know, you have a court case, you, you want to sue somebody, the court could say, well, here's a, here's some private arbitrators. Here's a list of private arbitrators in your area. Um, you know, you guys pick one of them because we don't want to do this. <laughs> you know, we have a big backlog of cases, whatever. We don't have time here. Just go to the private arbitrator. You know, like, I don't see any disaster that's going to happen there. And if that works out okay, you could imagine expanding it to where, you know, every case, almost every case could be handled by private arbitrators. And then we're getting really close to anarcho-capitalism, right? Without any, you know, big disaster happening. Well, you talked about, you mentioned before that the 
there is a tribalism, there's a thing in people that has this sort of bias. And it's it seems like part of this will require a bunch of people to think more like you. Uh, but you but people are bad at thinking more like you as a general rule. <laughs> so you've written about your book. So are you being kind of uh, Pollyannish about people changing their mind and becoming more like Mike Humor? Yeah. Well, I mean, when I describe this transition, there could be a number of motivations, right? So like a narco-capitalist would hear about this and say, oh, good, we're moving towards anarchy. Yeah. <laughs> right. But also, um, you know, my story about the police, outsourcing the police duties, um, you can easily imagine people who are not necessarily libertarian anarchists thinking this is a good idea, right? Like all of the Black Lives Matter protesters. Think, yeah, you know, like the cops are, um, you know, with us too much, <laughs> like whatever, killing too many innocent people. And uh, I don't hear a lot of stories about private security guards murdering innocent people, so or using excessive force and whatever. So maybe this would be better. Uh, you could also imagine it from the standpoint of the government officials, right? Because frequently they sort of feel like they they have too much to do, right? Like they don't have the resources or whatever, right? So I mentioned the court system is really backlogged, right? Like I bet a lot of courts would be happy to have fewer cases. They'd be happy to outsource their cases to private arbitrators, right? Uh, the people involved in, in disputes would like to go to a private arbitrator. I don't know why more people don't because they, they can. Maybe they just don't know about it. I don't know. <laughs> Um, but you know, then when they see that their dispute gets resolved, like in a fraction of the time for a fraction of the cost, they're going to be happy about it. Like, so you don't have to be a libertarian ideologue, you know, for, for a lot of this stuff to make sense. You've written, well, you've, you've given a, a talk, including a, a TED talk, which we'll put in the show notes, but that p people are irrational about politics. Um, that may not be striking to some or maybe, but you, you think it's a pretty deep problem. So why why is there a problem of irrationality in politics? Yeah, I mean, so like I gave some examples. Like, So at the time, this was shortly after um, the Iraq war. And, you know, I pointed out that whatever, we'd killed something like 300,000 people. There are different estimates. I don't know how many people, but something like 300,000. Um, mostly civilians were killed in the Iraq war. And, you know, like, like what what problem did this solve that was more that was bigger than th the 300,000, almost all innocent deaths, right? Um, you know, like Bush tried to draw some connection to terrorism, but like the terrorism had only killed 3,000 people total, but like slightly over 3,000 people total in the history of the country, the whole history of the country. Um, anyway, so, you know, it seemed like, I don't know, it didn't seem like it was going that great. Um, but anyway, but, you know, if you're a conservative, you might have not liked that example. Okay, but anyway, uh, the reason why there's a lot of irrationality is that um, when people form their political beliefs, they don't have much stake in it. So that is, you know that when you form a political belief, that's not actually going to affect your interests. I, I guess to be more more clear here, the correctness of your political belief is not going to affect your interests, right? Like if you form a political belief and it's false, the fact that it's false is not going to make any difference to your interests. Um, you're forming the political belief can affect your interests in the sense that it helps you bond with people that you like. Or if you form the wrong political belief and then you happen to accidentally express it, then it causes you to be oppressed, 
right? Like it causes you to get canceled and fired from your job or whatever. So it affects your, your personal interest in that way. But the actual truth or falsity of the belief has almost nothing to do with, you know, how well it affects your interest. So therefore you don't have an incentive to be rational, right? Like, it doesn't particularly serve your interest to be rational, right? Uh, maybe you can vote better in the election, but the probability of that making a difference to the outcome is like one in a million, one in a hundred million or something like that. So, you know, it's just, it just swamped by the other um, effects on your personal interests, like, you know, getting along with other people. And so this is what people do, right? Uh, they form their political beliefs in order to get along with a particular group. They're like, yeah, I like this group, or I like this tribe that I want to affiliate with, so I'm going to say the thing that this tribe says, right? And then they use the political beliefs as tools for kind of expressing their affiliation. You know, like, I mean, I, you know, lots of examples of this, but, um, you know, like, there's like evidence that people are being irrational. If you just think about it, like some of the evidence is just sort of obvious if you think about it. Like, um, there are a lot of beliefs that tend to go together that have no logical connection, Right. There are even some cases where um, you have beliefs that you would think the opposite beliefs would go together. <laughs> okay, so, um, you know, unrelated beliefs. Like, if you think that fetuses are people, then it's a lot more likely that you think people have a right to own a gun. These are totally unrelated, right? <laughs> uh, if you think that fetuses are not people, then it's more likely that you support socialism. Like, these are totally unrelated, right? <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, for an example of the, the opposite related beliefs, like, uh, if you think that fetuses have rights, it's more likely that you don't think that animals have rights and vice versa, which is quite strange. You would think a priori that there would be the reverse correlation. Like, if you have a more expansive conception of rights, if you think that all sentient beings have rights, then you would think that both animals and fetuses have rights. So you'd be, you know, like you'd be against um, factory farming. You'd also be against abortion, right? Like that makes sense. <laughs> but but that's the opposite of the correlation that happens. And so, you know, that's some evidence of irrationality. You know, something else is going on in people's beliefs besides just like thinking about it and trying to figure out the truth, right? You recently had an exchange with Walter Block, who some of our listeners might be familiar with. And there was a line in your reply to him, and this was about he was critiquing a piece that you had written about vegetarianism and the moral case for for vegetarianism. But there was a piece that spoke to a broader issue, I think, for libertarians and where you you say, quote, many things are extremely important, even if they're not addressed by one's preferred political ideology. To declare that one does not care about any problem that is not addressed by one's ideology is simply not a reasonable position. And this is... This is an issue within libertarian philosophy because there's a connection, or maybe not, between political philosophy and moral philosophy. And some libertarians are of the belief that the only thing that we should care about as libertarians is state coercion, specifically state coercion, what actions the state does or does not take, and anything else that people decide to do outside of that particular coercive relationship. Um, it's not just that libertarian political theory has nothing to say about it, but that libertarians should not care about it because it's just consenting adults, say. Um, and you are, in this issue, you're pushing back against that, but can you unpack a bit about that disagreement and how you think that we as libertarians ought to think about it? Well, 
Yeah, I mean, I you know, I would point out that not all coercion is state coercion, right? <laughs> like there could be coercion by not state non-state actors which we're against, right? <laughs> like we're, we're against violating people's rights even if you're not the state. Um, you know, like and most libertarians I think are minimal state libertarians, not anarchists. And so the whole reason why you need a state is to stop other kinds of coercion, okay? And that is relevant to the vegetarianism issue because the animals are not consenting you know, to be killed and tortured and whatever else. Um, that I don't know whether they have rights or not, but like uh, you know, they're definitely being maltreated and, you know. Okay, so, but um, yeah, you know, so if you believe, you believe a certain um, kind of like political philosophy, uh, political philosophy sounds better than political ideology, but they're basically the same thing, right? Okay, you believe this political philosophy, which has this stuff about, um, you know, when is the state allowed to do things? What actions is the state allowed to perform? Um, and then you come up with an issue that's not addressed by that. It doesn't follow that it's not important. Like, what's going on? Like, how could you think that? Um, and, you know, I think that a large part of what's going on is people do, um, people kind of talk about politics and sort of engage in political activity, activism, whatever, for entertainment, for their own entertainment. They tell themselves the story that they're doing it to help society or whatever, but periodically some evidence comes out that reveals that they're really doing it for their own entertainment and that they don't care about whatever, making the world a better place. And this is one of them, right? When you get an issue where there's something that's clearly very bad or there's like clearly a huge problem, but it's like not connected to your particular tribe, like, right? It's not connected to your ideology or it's not one of the issues that your tribe and the opposing tribe are conflicting over. And then suddenly you do not care about it. Okay, if that happens, that shows that you never gave a shit about society or the world or whatever, and you're just like doing your own entertainment, like trying to be a tribal human, you know, my tribe over the other tribe, right? And so, but, but then I think if you realize that that's the case, then you should feel bad and you should reform yourself. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.